0: very warm welcome to the Understanding Users podcast, brought to you by Researchable UX. It's great to have you with me. I'm your host, Mike Green. I'm a freelance user research lead and digital consultant based in the UK. Over the coming weeks, I'm going to be chatting to various digital experts who I've had the pleasure of working with in recent years. They're from various disciplines, including user research, UX design, development, and product management. And they'll even be a digital business owner or two. I'll be talking to them about how they came to be in their current roles, what they've learned along the way, and what advice they may have for others getting into the field. These are intended to be relaxed informal chats with professionals who are keen to share their experiences, so sit back and enjoy. In this episode of Understanding Users, Tim talks of the aha moments of the experience design process and the power of continually asking why to ensure you get to the root cause of the problem that you're designing for. He talks of the need for designers to continually stay curious and empathetic in their work and reflects on the surprising prevalence of imposter syndrome within the design community as a result. He also considers the constraints that remote working places on those of us facilitating design workshops, particularly when trying to read a room full of participants who can't interact physically and won't even turn their cameras on in some cases. Finally, he plays my three-card challenge to share his favourite UX tool, favourite technique and a trend he hopes to see in the future. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoy the episode. So my guest today is Tim Blass. And Tim uh, is Experienced Design Lead at MMT Digital. And like all of my guests on the show, I've had the great pleasure of working with him in the past. Uh, it's great to have you on the podcast, Tim.
1: Uh, it's great to be invited, Mike. Thanks very much for the opportunity.
0: So tell me a little bit to begin with about your role and about MMT Digital and as an organization.
1: Okay, sure. Yeah. So I'll tell you a bit about MMT to start and I'll kind of set the context and I'll explain a bit more about the role afterwards. So yes, yeah, so MMT Digital, we're um, a design and build agency largely with, with a obviously with a massive footprint within sort of the development um, part of the process. So we're a, a content management um, build agency. So a Kentaco um CMS goal Partner and we have various kind of partnerships with other. Um, CMS providers as well. Um, so, our main um, sort of purpose has been around building websites and digital products and experiences using those CMS systems as well. And within that, um, design is is a much has has been traditionally much more of a smaller part in terms of the agency footprint in in terms of where I've worked previously. So that was quite an interesting challenge. That said, we're looking at obviously at changing that and becoming much more, I guess, more consultancy based, if you like, and playing much more within the design and and the influencing space and defining space, as well as the development area as well. So in terms of my role within that, and kind of what that means is I'm experience design lead within a, still quite a sizable experience design team within um, MMT Digital, so we have, 12 full time experienced designers currently within the team, and my role largely similar to, to other lead roles is, is probably less about doing and more about kind of setting um, the direction, the vision that other members of the experience design team work towards for projects. So, um, that also includes things like planning out um, user experience, UX, best practice methodologies for our clients, engaging with client stakeholders and obviously occasionally getting it mucking in and doing uh user research interviews and ia validation studies and and such like as well but it tends to be more on the thinking the direction setting and the guidance side of things i also have the pleasure of of looking after kind of our new talent that comes into the experience design team as well so and um, we have uh, a junior experience design um team member that that. I I line manage, and then also we have a experienced designer graduate placement. So every year we will take um, a placement student on their year out from university, doing a graphic design or a UX design or some form of digital design related degree, and they're spending year with with us, and we 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 train them, we give them that experience, and I still look after them as well. So I've got kind of a new talent development role within the team as well. So quite multifaceted in that respect and an interesting um position to be in and what about you uh thinking about your kind of uh,
0: career trajectory if you like how did you get to where you are now and what sort of brought you into this world to begin with crumbs
1: um (laughs) (laughs) yeah i guess like a lot of ux design i've been doing ux i guess ux design long before it was called UX design because my, my background, I I started out, I I started out, I did a degree in languages and economics and I wasn't very good. I was all right at languages. I wasn't good enough to get a job languages. And I went back and I did marketing. Um, and as a result, then I joined Raw Mail as a product development manager and product manager and proposition development manager. And I spent several years going through that. My last role at, at Raw Mail was was product manager for a new online proposition that they had and that really got me into digital back in that would have been like the the early sort of 1999 sort of 2000 time around that time as well so that then got me into digital design I then went on and and actually went into e-commerce for a while I worked for um, as as an e-com manager and also had an experience design remit within that for a company called ancestry.co.uk so massive in the genealogy and family history space um, and experience design naturally came with that and I used my user research and my skills that I, I learned and had previously within my various roles as a product development manager and things like that in that space and then it kind of evolved from there and then probably the pivotal kind of point I guess within this was when I went and worked as an experience designer client side and for a few years and then went to work for an agency. I went to work for an agency called NMENSA, who obviously well-known in the, the UX industry in Bristol. Um, I then went on, left and went to work for another agency who were part of the WPP. So a um, process called Heath Wallace, um, and then back to NMENSA again for a few years. And then and then I found my way into MMT Digital, where I've been for nearly three years now. So I guess my mix of client and agency side with an experienced designer sort of spanned around 20 years and probably half of that time has been been agency side as well the big change though or something i was keen to explore um with mmt is the fact that unlike the likes of the Mensa that are all recognized for being an experienced design agency with with some development capability that thing is largely flipped on its head when when i came to mmt digital so i was interested to see how it could help Build in experience design and help kind of grow experience design with within a, an agency that traditionally is is more better known for its development and its kind of delivery of CMS based websites and things like that. So, yeah, so I guess yeah, I've been I yeah I've been in this experience design space for around twenty years, albeit not in roles that were necessarily called experience design at the time, but using those various techniques and skills. As and it's well, interesting. So.
0: That that's that's fascinating and interesting to hear from another linguist because I my first degree was languages as well. So uh, yeah, we lots of us have come into this world from different different avenues, but uh, yeah, languages. Yeah, really and one.
1: yeah, and I guess whilst I don't know, I mean, I don't you, I use my language to go on holiday, which is useful, but <laughs> I guess the la- actually the more important thing for language thing is that understanding of people and culture yeah, and context, um, and I guess that's where kind of my love of like. Experiences and culture, and actually, come has come from through through that notion of language and what we mean and what we understand by it. So, I guess I am using that in lots of different ways on a daily basis and experiences. I'm, albeit I'm, less so in terms of the languages themselves that I spent four years at university trying to get better at. <laughs> That's fascinating. Yeah, absolutely.
0: So tell me about a typical day then. You've touched on kind of MMT and, and your role. Kind of what what is it what does a day look like for you as experienced design lead?
1: I'm trying to find a way of telling saying that no two days are the same, but um, I guess I guess um, it, it varies. It varies according to what types of projects and, and areas of responsibility that I am kind of taking on and very I have multiple projects going on at the same time. At the same time, so a day will often involve having to chop and change between kind of different projects for clients and different at different stages within sort of the the UX design process or within the sprint process. because so obviously we we are a development based agency, therefore a lot of our work is done in agile and sprint based design. So there'd be client facing. So so typically in a week there'd be you know there'd be a, a lot of work um, moving between different client projects. Um, a lot of times also have internal projects that we'll be doing as part of the agency I'll also be working on our um, internal um, delivery processes as well for for things that where we're trying to evolve our experience design aspects to our to our two of the project teams so that might be on looking at new ways of doing things in the team and then obviously supporting um, and, and nurturing the new talent that we have as well so with, through line management and through kind of skills and experience design um based training as well. So it's it's a real mix of things that we're asked to get you're asked to get drawn upon.
0: And how do you typically work with your clients in terms of obviously during the pandemic it's been, you know, we've all been remote, but in terms of kind of working alongside them, whether that be remotely or face to face, sharing insights, ensuring that you have a sort of shared vision of, of of the project you're working on, how how does that play out?
1: Yeah, I mean the pandemic for a lot of agencies kind of flip the traditional model of client agency on its head. I think MMT was, it was and is well-placed, was well-placed to kind of, whether the pandemic storm, a lot of agencies didn't make it through or they've come out in a very different way to what they went into the pandemic. But um, for MMT, we've always been a, a multi-locational based um, organization. So um Yeah, we've got offices in London, MMT was founded um, by two guys in Uppingham in Leicestershire. So there's, so the main office for MMT is actually in Uppingham, Leicestershire. So like, and then we've got offices in Leeds. So actually the business is spread over lots of different offices as well. So, um, and that sort of translates into our client working as well. So we do a lot of our work with our clients remotely Um, and that presents challenges that also obviously presents opportunities as well, but we're less, I guess we're less reliant on, on face-to-face interaction with the clients than some other agencies may have, just because traditionally we are, have been a multi co-locate is probably the, the most appropriate way to describe that business and organization. So, um, it does mean that we do need to, um, you know, work in slight, I guess, in slightly different ways. um. And probably the biggest the biggest challenge is, is obviously whenever we if we have workshops, things like that, we will try and do some of those workshops face to face because there's no substitute for getting that face to face time for getting those post-it notes and things on the wall. Virtually it can be done, but um it's harder and there's certain instances where things actually remote um isn't wouldn't be our number one choice or preference for doing that if if we can if we can specify that as well. So
0: and it's that building rapport, isn't it? In, in whoever your client might be, even colleagues, there's no substitute for doing it face to face in a room. Much as we've got used to using all these great remote tools.
1: Yeah, and particularly early on in that relationship where you're you're forming relationship. I mean, how, how Christian is like so sort of says how yeah how can we read a how can you read a room when you've got like a whiteboard a mural board in front of you and then like four people. F- five five client people on the call a couple of whom aren't showing their video screens or what have you so how how do you read the room then so yeah it's it is a it is is a challenge but um that's very true i
0: mean this exactly i was just thinking as you were saying it this keeping your camera off i think it you know understandably people don't always want to be on camera but it makes it very very hard if you're dealing with stakeholders or clients if you you can't see them (laughs) they just said they spend much of their time on mute they're just this sort of disembodied people on the call yeah or or
1: actually uh, that or this term that i found out the other day called presenteeism where somebody's in the meeting but they're doing something else and you know is is, are they listening in are they doing something are they sharing notes between each other about stuff which you'd obviously see and stuff in the meeting so it's always interesting um with that and i guess it also it, it 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 can make facilitation harder as well just more broadly as well because it's far easier when you're in a room to see who's not facilitating or sorry who's not participating and how you get those people involved it can all be easy to forget about the people that aren't saying something on a remote call whereas it's it's more evident more apparent when you're in a kind of a physical face-to-face setting i think yeah um, absolutely to do that so so kind of on that note how do you think ux teams in
0: particular can ensure they're having an, uh, an impact on the product teams they're working with whether those product teams or clients are you know face to face with them co-located or whether they're remote
1: how do you ensure that impact i think a lot of it comes down to to the preparation and what you need to to do um i think probably if you are going to be more remote based with some of those engagements that requires much clearer preparation um, than maybe it does face-to-face because you've got that additional layer of technology playing out. And I like to think now that probably there's probably less of a challenge there than there would have been maybe a year or two ago when a lot of people were still trying to get to grips with teams or collaborative tools and collaborative way of working as well. But you've always got that additional technology layer that you're dependent on to deliver that experience all that workshop or whatever it might be um when you're doing that in a rem- remote setting as well so it's just another thing you have to prepare for um and plan for um so yeah it's a good question i've not really kind of thought about it <laughs> in that way it just just tended to get on and, and and do it but i definitely find myself doing more preparation for re- remote for remote working than i ever did probably probably a bit more face to face um and and yeah probably probably as well there's probably a bit more in in maybe in some of the preparation that we we can get kind of the the clients to do up front as well so when you come into that workshop space everyone feels that they're in a in a position to make a contribution straight from straight from the outset
0: um, right and beyond clients thinking kind of of the users how can right. product teams more broadly ensure that there's a sort of user-centric um, mindset throughout the team and that you're always keeping users in mind as you, as you work
1: on these products and services yeah that is always a challenge there's always a point at which sometimes it goes oh we've done the research we've done this that, and the other now we're into delivery mode and then and then things get stopped or things momentum slows down for a bit and then things get picked up again. And then all that research and insight kind of somehow gets dropped off the back of it. So I think it's about making sure that, you know, there is a journey for all the insight. First, you've got a process that allows you to do that work in the first place and gather the insight and the evidence you need to inform your design work that then gets carried through into delivery and beyond. Um, but assuming that's in place and that is a big challenge in itself in a lot of instances, um, then it's about making sure that the insights and things that you learn travel through through the process. So that that is I guess that's a combination and also as teams, people swap in and out of teams as and also as clients come and go within the client as people move on it's super important. So you need to make sure those insights can live on. So um, I know documentation is a bit of a dirty word these days in in the guise of Lean UX and design, things like that. But you do need some element of that coming through that that you can trace back. There should always be a point. There should never be a point in the process at which somebody goes, why are we developing this component? Or why are we doing that? Or why have you designed it that way? There should always be the transparency back to that initial need or requirement that you can trace back and in well. in your case then what
0: you, you whether it be documentation or some kind of um, deliverables how do you do that um, whether individually or as a team to ensure that there is that shared
1: track yeah. record i mean so for us so for us um in an ideal world in a best practice ux process there's certain activities you do in a certain order and you do all of them in reality it's rare that you get the opportunity to do all that for various reasons, for budget, for time, or what have you. Anyway, one of the key elements into that is pivotal is 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 around things like the user journey mapping what you do as well. So if you think about um, probably, you know, in terms of the double diamond process, discover, define, design, deliver, then I think for us it's kind of like the the stuff you do indefinitely, the stuff you do in the definition phase, which is where you're kind of making sense of the research, the insight, and you're starting to work towards an experience or design is super critical. Um, and if you get if you don't get the opportunity to do that, then it's very hard to actually can be very hard to, to make the the link between the research if you've done it and actually the design outcome so for me the definition element part of it is super duper important if you get that right that then becomes the hub at which your insight gets fed and your insight gets taken forward into defining that experience that you design for so in terms of transparency that we just kind of spoke about um, if you don't have something solid within that definition phase to do that it's very it's very hard to ensure you maintain that insight going forward because I guess the insight's valuable, but but the, def- the definition is doing something with the insight, which is defining, helping to define, inform the design or the questions that your designs need to answer or you need to have answered by various types of things like concept testing and things like that, proof of concept and things kind of for me straddle the definition design phase of the process largely so
0: and in terms of the format you use to to share those insights and to ensure a kind of collective understanding how do you do that i mean do you do shows and tells do you do uh, other do you use other particular tools um to to ensure that everyone particularly clients obviously are aware of what's going on and are in agreement with it
1: yeah i mean we do a lot of walkthroughs right um as well and and this is probably one of the areas where remote is quite constraining as well so some of the best experiences we've had with our our clients is is when we take those customer journey maps and those big kind of multi-stream documents we print them out and then we pin them up on the wall and that could be the as is process and with all the pain points and that could be also the 2b process as well in terms of what we're working towards as well we're probably steer away from the old days of like there we did some we did 40 user interviews and there's the 150 page report bang <laughs> yes, yeah. that, that sits in somebody's virtual desk or in inbox or folder and never to be seen again so it's a whole i guess there's a whole thing about actual insight stuff as well there is an element of that obviously but i think that's probably one of the hardest challenges actually starting out is when you start out and you do the basic research the insight stuff where all us UX designers get excited about because we're learning stuff, we're testing stuff. The client to the client, is just, yeah, but, yeah, but what are you gonna do with that? And that's the next bit of the process. So, um, and I guess there are various things that you can do as well. So things like getting the client in to observe the testing and it kind of immerse them in those early stages so it doesn't become just a piece of dry documentation. Um, for them, um, doing things like show reels and video show reels of, of things that show users interacting with the product or, or or kind of giving their feedback on on how they feel towards the, the client's brand or whatever that might be as part of the experience, because that has a big part to play in, in the experience design process for sure. Um, any way we can immerse the client in the world of the user in the absence of having anything that says and this is how we're going to design for it going forward is super important that's probably the biggest challenge is is how do we get the clients engaged and also to get away from this idea that well we've done research because we've done it here so we've done the research bit or we did research and we didn't learn anything new last time but it's like that doesn't mean all research is bad that just means you had a bad experience of what happened before so I think how can we bring those immersive experiences to clients in a way that they can start on that journey towards seeing how that insight is informing the design but ultimately probably the big the big moment comes is when you see those customer journey maps in in all their glory and you can start to understand what you thought maybe was quite a simple process is actually far more involved and there's far more kind of interdependencies Built into it as as you go as well. So for me, those getting those immersive experiences are really important for clients because you,
0: yeah, 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 and and that what as you're saying the walkthroughs. I mean, the sort of walking the wall. You get everyone in a room, and you, you I've seen it done so many times. You print out this thing on A zero or whatever it is, and and then you can actually just in one glance see everything rather than trying to view it in in mirror or mural, as you say. And, and you can get everyone around the board and, 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 and talking and sharing ideas. It's very powerful.
1: Yeah. And also physically is is like getting people out of their seats. I think this is one of the hardest things, Mike, I found when, when we went into lockdown and remote, it's sort of fantastic. I don't need to spend two hours in and out because I, in and out of the London, going into London every day. Because um, I don't live, Yeah, you know, I live a bit further out than zone six, shall we say. Um, But, but yeah, that is the other thing as well, and, and get up on a, a whiteboard and draw some stuff out. And it's like, well, I can't do that now, I'm in my seat. But getting them out and getting them interacting with something physical, as opposed to looking at somebody else's screen on a screen share is super important because you engage you engage it in a different way. It's a, it, I guess it's the same like saying people say that when you read something on a physical page, a book, you read it on a digital page. The experience is very different and actually the amount, the information retention, the experience you get from that is very different as well on those different mediums, albeit you're looking at the same content, but in a very different format, but the experience is very different that you come away with. So I think that's probably one of the biggest um, challenges actually as well.
0: And and, no, I totally agree. And going back to what you were saying earlier about presenteeism, of course, somebody can be in a workshop, quote unquote, online, but actually they're not. They're on Slack or they're emailing or they're just... Engagement is increased. Uh, But it's, yeah, these are skills we've all had to learn at speed or certainly did two years ago. (laughs) And we're still figuring out how to do it.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I don't, I don't think we're we'll ever go back to the the pre-pandemic world. I mean MMT is an interesting agency because because um I you know where I work I'm like I will go in so I'm based over in the southwest so I'm based over towards Bristol way but not Bath Bristol way not quite as far over as Bristol. My my home office in Verticommerce is is our London office which is Covent Garden. Now previously I was going in to our soho office which is where we were before and we became part of the msq group of agencies. so we're now part of a bigger agency group called msq mt digital is a core part of that and um, i was going to london four times a week i'd probably now go in once a fortnight to the office as well so 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 our way of working is, has changed as well and you know i think there's there's pros and cons to that as well, but I think we've got much more flexibility in how we do stuff. I guess I guess the big advantage is, in theory, is, is that um, one of the biggest challenges we had in the pre-COVID times was getting users to test with. So we'd kind of use remote testing as a bit of a fallback, but we'd largely want to bring users in face-to-face because we thought that's what we needed to do, I think. If anything positive comes out of these last couple of years, it has to be remote user testing has gotten better. The tools have gotten better. The processes that people are putting in place got better. There's less of an excuse not to do user testing because it doesn't mean that you've got to get 12 people to disrupt their days and come into a lab somewhere and to do something they can do it from the luxury of their own home with their own technology which presents a challenge in itself. But at the same time, it should be easier in theory to do user research. That said, um, accessibility tests, um, user testing with users with techn- assistive technology or accessible needs, I still feel like you, you, you need to be doing that in a face-to-face environment. But more broadly in user testing as a whole, I think this remote way of working should hopefully give greater credence for user research and user interviews and user testing, et cetera, because it's become easier and more convenient for users to engage in that process as yeah. a result. So
0: that's it. No, I, I absolutely agree. And, and as you say, people are in their own homes in their, you know, track suit with a cup of tea on their sofa and they're not trooping into this very sterile lab environment yeah. in central London, which is very alienating in some ways.
1: They could be wearing shorts for all we know, Mike. And we, <laughs> we, we, we wouldn't judge them for it. We would not we judge them for it. As long as they're not in their pyjamas. <laughs> I, I draw the line at no. that. <laughs> no. um, just thinking
0: about experienced designers, uh, UX designers, researchers as, as a sort of breed, what characteristics and personality traits do you think make good... Uh, UXs, if I can put it like that, people that are, are liable to you know, be good at what they do and, and draw the best out of people.
1: Yeah, that's an interesting one because I think we've all got different experiences, experience signs, but there's certain traits that you just see coming through time and time and time again from other people and you can, ah, I can relate to that as well. And I think some of the, you've got to care about other people and be empathetic I think empathy is quite an overused word, but you do have to be an empathetic person as well. If you, you know, to be a good designer, um, I've met designers who, by and by and large, by ninety percent, ninety-nine five percent, people I work with are empathetic designers. You can spot the ones that aren't empathetic, like they call <laughs> like the rock star designers. That about mm. it's about me and showing about how good I am at what I do. Type people but I think empathy is, is a big part of it um, I think experienced designers tend to be um, very worry warriors by nature um, and I think that's a good thing but I think, think that can be a negative thing as well so imposter syndrome is is quite prevalent within the design community I don't just mean UX design I mean in other design pursuits as well so architecture built environment product design um, because you worry that you want to make you want to deliver the best experience with the best product that you can and you're always question about how can I make it better how can I do this how can I do that um, and sometimes that can as a des- experience designers can turn that in on, the, on themselves as well and that's kind of where you get this imposter syndrome type situation occurring so I think we're inherent warriors as, as experienced designers um, I think we're uh, a desire to problem solve, a desire to make better, a desire to understand what the true problem is that we're trying to solve because the way we all know the way you frame a problem very heavily dictates the way you solve the problem. And we always want to be spending time understanding what the problem is firsthand. Um, and I think they're kind of positive things. I think sometimes we can all maybe um, be analytical, in various degrees and what part of it you always want to know how can I make this things better and what it is that I need to know to know that I've I've got that right or it feels right is is large sometimes the extent we can become over overly analytical um but I think yes yeah, so I think empathy is a key trait I think uh we tend to be warriors by nature just by nature what we do um and tend to be very very Hopefully, analytical and analysis led, even if it's self analytical as well. I guess the last thing, as well, is turning that in is about being self reflective as well. And particularly, and I see that in some of the junior designers as well. It's like, yeah, I did that, and how can I improve on that? And what it is that um, I think we kind of open. we should and we should keep ourselves always open to kind of not critique, but to feedback and things like that, whether it's feedback that we turn on ourselves, whether it's feedback coming from each other as well. So that desire for self-reflection, the desire to know that we are making a difference or that we are evolving our thinking going forward. Um, that that's
0: really interesting. No, I, I, I agree with totally agree with your list there, and that thing about worriers and worrying. You know, I suppose that's a typically negative trait, or is perceived generally as. But it kind of comes from a good place, as you're saying. You worry because you want to do a good job, and you want to benefit the user ultimately. If we're building user centred
1: services and products, um, yeah. And I think early on in my career, when I started out, uh, if a client or somebody else said no, or well, that's not the right thing, I'd worry that I'd done something wrong. Because hang on, I've got it wrong. Because somebody's telling me that I, or implying that I've got it wrong. I guess the older yet yeah, is an experience to say, well, no, doesn't mean that. Or yeah, if maybe I have got it wrong, but that doesn't matter. I know a, a way by which I can fix it. Or actual fact, you you can challenge back and say, but we saw this and saw that, and I think that's probably you know, that's probably an area that gets taken with experience. That said, with through sort of the new crop of experience designers been bringing through, they're kind of much faster on that and to say, in actual fact, um, no, actually, I, you know, I, I don't believe I am wrong. Maybe this is some area that we need to explore. And I think probably that's the element as well that we kind of push back on. But yeah, I've yet to met an empathetic experience designer who isn't also a warrior. Yeah. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah.
0: So what advice then would you give somebody who wanted to get into this world? If someone came to you and said, Hey, I want to become an experienced designer. What would you tell them?
1: Um, I would say, look, I I guess it's dependent on where they are in their, their training or their career path as well. I think there's so many different routes into experience design. I say, I say, explore it, find out more about, get, Kind of inform yourself, kind of, about what what experience design is. Read the blog, sign up to various um, podcasts and things like this one. Or find opportunities to learn as well. Use your networks. Um, Experience is much, I think it's much easier now to find roots into experience design, probably than it was a few years ago, because there's a better understanding of what it is. There's lots still of UX equals UI stuff going on. Um, so be call, be mindful of that. Um, but again, yeah, just kind of seek out opportunities, seek out placements. There's lots of good um, courses out there, open learning courses and distance learning courses as well that can give you some kind of endorsement as well. I think for those people that are starting out, um, maybe look at certain aspects of what you've experienced. If, you, if you've already been in a career for a while or you've got some experience work experience behind you what have you look at those elements of experience that that you can relate to the experience design process and maybe use those as as a way because let's be honest no no one no no experience designer is is 100% proficient in all aspects of the experience design process if they are they're probably lying if they are I've yet to meet them more they're probably they'd have to be like a thousand years old or something it just doesn't they just don't exist so you know, look at what you've got probably already and see what you can bring to the table and then use that as a way, use that as a way and then evolve your experience going forward and just try and get involved with projects, hackathons, all these types of things that are going on within the experience design community. Get your your name in there, get your name known. And yeah, it it is, it's a growing industry, but I still think, you know, um, personal references and you know, people like to work with people they know, or or, or that are referred to by the people. So we place massive store on um, who we bring into the business based on references and networks and things, because you know it is a people to people business. So and we're still quite a small community, I think, in that respect as well, for that to play a big part. So.
0: And it and that imposter syndrome you were talking about earlier with with our discipline evolving so fast and this plethora of tools and the amount of blog posts and podcasts and stuff it can be overwhelming you could spend all day every day just reading stuff from other designers or watching videos on youtube or you know watching ted talks without actually doing anything so there comes a point where you just have to i suppose focus on what you're interested in and and not get overwhelmed because i sometimes think heavens above (laughs) you know just go away
1: yeah if you try and keep up to date with everything you'll do a failure and you'll just drive yourself into a a big way i to be honest with you i'm going to fess up here i don't read a lot of stuff on experience design and stuff these days my i i take my inspiration from kind of other design practices like architecture i'm a massive fan of architecture concept art i just love concept art and i use that kind of the whole generation generative processes ideation that come through from concept i take my inspiration and, and sources from things that aren't experience design in e-commerce, virt- but starting out i think it's it's super important but it is easy to get overwhelmed by that so um oh also that you know there's you know videos there's you know content and read digital content hard copy physical content stuff like that there's so much stuff going on um but yeah i would say there's probably if you're starting out, if you're looking for something, try and yeah, spend a bit of time identify a core set of resources or references that you can relate to or serve you are and maybe work with those, and maybe expand expand up. But don't try and cover the whole gamut of stuff. And a lot of times, Mike, it's it's once it's the same stuff coming round, arguments coming round and round again. And after a while, you'll start to pick up on that, I think as well, and it starts to become easier because they do go these arguments and stuff do go full circle absolutely
0: um, just going back to you just this is a question what do you love about
1: what you uh, you do tim um what i love is 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 being presented with an opportunity to make something better and given basically a blank sheet of paper how to do it so some what i love is some with that says we've got this thing that we don't quite know how to solve. Well, we've got this as opportunity to do something, um, but we're not quite sure what it is we need to do or how to go about it. Um, and I, the bit of that process that I love is the moment where you go, ah, I've got it, I know what it is. I know what it is we need to be doing. It's kind of that aha moment Do you get. Um, and it's that trust in the process it's like a lot of clients think you're an expert there if you're an expert in their field so if they come to you saying we've got this problem we work in this vertical space or in education wherever it might be you're an expert in their subject matter areas expertise and it's not like that we're experts in the process we know more importantly we know what we don't know but we know how to get answers to that to inform the process so it's that it's that it's that moment where you go i've got it i know i know the solution that we need to be working towards all the things that we need to be testing out to help inform that process that's the bit for me where it goes yeah this is where we're this is the start of where we deliver something better or something new which is just, hopefully is the same thing and what about the converse of
0: that what what frustrates you or annoys you about what you do
1: um i guess it's the idea that you can take bits out of user experience design process and still come up with the same outcome either largely in the name of time and then find that it takes you three times to deliver something because you're not sure about what you're trying to live or why it is or how important it is or indeed if it's ever going to be used or needed i think that's the biggest thing for us is 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 having enough time to do proper experience design thinking and and work in 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 the process and desire to deliver faster um, and start delivery sooner than you're actually ready to start, um, and that is a, that is a continual challenge that we face um, in the work we do and the client thinking stuff. Because they say, "Well, we've got the research, so we can just jump into the designing the UI and stuff like that." Um, and I'm sure that's probably a yeah, that's going to be a perennial probably um, pain point for a large number of designers. I would have thought
0: and it's interesting as a, as a researcher with a research hat on the number of times that you know research is i've i've experienced this and i've heard it a lot from other researchers that that's the bit that can be skipped or we've done one round we know enough that's fine let's crack on but like you're saying whereas actually you save yourself a lot of time further down the line if you get the research right
1: up front and you properly understand what it is you're trying to solve yeah or then you or then somebody comes back and they say right well, an actual fact yeah yeah we need to do a bit of ux and then you find out that they You've got yeah, we're gonna. You've got a couple of days to solve this stuff, and it's uh, it's a bit late. It's a bit. All oh, UX gets bought in. That's the other one. UX gets bought in just before something is due to start. So, yeah, to solve a problem because UX wasn't done at the start of the process. That's that's another. But you can't win them all. You can't. You can't win them <laughs> all. You can't win them all. All right. Okay. Last
0: thing then, Tim. I've got three cards here. This is my three card okay. challenge. So. Trends, tool, and technique. So we've got a spade, we've got a heart, and we've got a done We're going to hold them up, there, so you can see them. Pick your first card.
1: Uh, I'm going to go with. I'm feeling. I'm feeling love, so I'm going to go with a heart, All right. Oh, that's good.
0: <laughs> so, the heart is tool. Tool. So tell me All about right. your favorite tool or something you use a lot and you, and you think adds value to the work you do.
1: Okay, so. Um, this is something that I've been banging on about to the other experience designers recently as well. Is is um sir so is is an online survey tool that I've used for a number of years and it is really, really powerful for doing kind of I say for doing quant based user research because largely what we do as experience designers isn't quant based research, it's more qualitative types of research. But that said, survey surveys do have a big part to play within the design process for sure um, and a survey tool that i absolutely love is is a tool called alchema it used to be called survey gizmo um, and they got bought out by alchema and we we're using um that tool a lot to inform our kind of our our insight and research processes largely off the back of having done some qualitative or 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 one-to-one user research up front and we want to build out and explore ideas or thoughts in more of a I guess in more of a a larger format some of a quant style format so Alchema Survey Gizmo very very powerful tool can do lots of things in terms of asking questions conditional questions it's very powerful in the way you can dice and slice information and analyze information to try and find relationships and correlations and things like that so and that's all within the tool without needing to. Export that data into SPSS or some some third party tool, which would probably be too powerful where you get kind of get lost in. So Alchema would be my,
0: mm, my um, interesting. I haven't heard of that. I'll tool check tool it out. That, that's yeah, I, 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 send, I, it.
1: I can send a link if you yeah, just interested okay. to find out more. But yeah, it's a really powerful tool. Um, it's obviously a paid for tool. There's lots of free ones out there. Yep. but for the money, to be honest, for on subscription, it's like a hundred. Twenty dollars a month or something, right? It more than pays for itself in terms of the value it delivers, right? So, right. yeah, interesting. Oh, there was a little okay. plug there, isn't it? I don't <laughs> remember.
0: You should be right. Next card.
1: Oh, yeah. let's go, Ace of Spades. Let's go, Spades. Spade is
0: technique.
1: technique. Oh, oh, what's your favourite tec- UX technique? Um, I think it's probably. Have you heard of a technique called the Five Y's? Yes, but yeah, tell us more. So, yeah, so I, I would say that kind of technique about sort of, which ought to me is is, is a way of kind of uncover root cause analysis in, in your research is super important. So um, traditionally a lot of research, and I think this is where we've seen research, where we've inherited research from other agencies or, or other information that's, that's kind of been done where in actual fact, um, what you get is superficial insight, where a question's been asked and a response has gone back, and that's been what's reported or recorded. So, the five whys allows you to kind of get down into the root cause of of, of why something is happening. Actually, what is the problem there that you're you're trying to trying to solve? So, um, a problem might be I'm trying to think of something in a moment. So, I, let's say a, a situation where some somebody's just run a red light or something in their car something like that and it'd be like oh so so why so so why did you go through that red light and the, and the user would say well, well i was late for work i was in a rush okay and then decided that that's the first why the second why so oh, so 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 why were you in a rush then and so yeah i woke up late and it's and you kind of work back and you have fun actually actually the, the root cause was you know they forgot to set their alarm or or something else like that or something else happened as well. So you want to design for the root cause rather than a design for the fact, well, we want to make them rush more effectively. What is it the problem that we're trying to solve? That's a bit of an extreme case. So the five whys technique and there's loads of stuff on the five whys technique as well. Some people don't like the five whys technique because they don't think you should ask the question why to a user because it's just you're saying why why Why? it implies some degree of accusation to the user. That said, um, any which way round you try and reframe the word why, what are your reasons for saying this? That's just as bad. You're trying to get them to rationalise what it is while they're doing it. Five whys is a good technique, albeit you might not use the why at each time you articulate that question. You may not need five whys, but it's always a useful thing to have, at which point you say, Yeah, at the third why, I've got it. I understand the problem. I feel like I know now what it is, the root cause, the problem that I'm trying to address. Mm. So it's like, wise it's, would be a good.
0: Yeah, it's like the need behind the need, isn't it? I've heard it described as that as well. It's like
1: the, you yeah, say, the superficial nice needs.
0: It. It's like, what's actually the reason for this? Why does the user need to do this?
1: Yeah, because ultimately the user main it's like, and also that the user may not know they've got a need and it's, uh, this latent need. So they may not ever actually identify. If you're reliant on the user to identify and to articulate their own need as a need, then you're, you're it's better than getting, getting a solution, but you're, you're reliant on them being able to have synthesized that problem and to solve it and to be able to articulate in a clearly defined need and that's really the case So, in actual fact that's something that as used experience design user researchers we probably wouldn't want them to do because they put a layer of self-interpretation on that so you're reliant on your decision being as good as only as good as the level of articulation and accuracy of their own synthesis on their own needs so oof. don't ask me to explain that one again on a friday <laughs> afternoon because i don't know i got there but yeah five whys check it brilliant out. you don't know
0: Last one then. Last one is a diamond and that is a trend. Oh so a trend I Well, a trend you see, maybe a trend you don't like, a trend you're worried about, a trend you wish was more trendy. Um anything.
1: Yeah, I I guess I guess I'm I guess this is a double edged sword trend. I'm kind of seeing more of more of it, so um it's something that's positive, but also it's, there, there is there's some a byproduct of it that I, I'm not a big fan of, and that is kind of user experience and experience design in general has become more prominent, more generally within as we move in, move ever ever more onto kind of digital channels as being the channel of choice or the primary channel, etc. Experience design is becoming more to the fore, so there's probably less of a sense of well, what is UX or experience design? Than there was probably ten or fifteen years ago when we started, and, and the, the pandemic sped that up as well. Um, so uh, a great awareness of UX and experience design as a thing, I guess, is, is trend. The the negative connotations with that are that um, that then means that a lot of cases experience design it can is framed around something that it isn't inherently, inherently isn't which is why we're seeing i think we're, we're still seeing that ux ui debate rambling on and i was thinking about this the other day it's like well, why is it we're still having this ux ui debate that's been going on for 10 15 20 years and stuff like that i think part of it and a large part of it is down to the fact that it is more prominent now and people therefore don't know what ux ui is therefore they're kind of explaining What it is when actually it isn't, and they're saying, "Yeah, we've done some experience design because we've done some UI work and stuff like that." So I think that's probably a negative side of the trend, which is increasing prominence. So if anything, that's more beholden on us that have been user experience designers around the industry for a while, or for for those that are coming, but understand what true user experience design is to make sure that you know it doesn't get perceived as just starting with design and at the interface level as well. So um, I think boy that's a you know that that's a trend that I've probably seen probably seen more of. So I think some exciting trends and stuff coming through and things like that as well, which we are really trying to get a sense of what that means as well. So, you know, I think I still think virtual environment stuff we still haven't really kind of got on with what that means and we talk about nfts a lot within experienced design community what does that mean what is we need to do is it totally say you know and and this stuff as well so there's some trends that i think we're still trying to try and and buy
0: nfts you're talking
1: about non-fungible tokens yeah, and yeah what part do they have to play in the experience design process do they have any part where do they fit in we need to understand it is it part does it change the way we work with clients does it change what we deliver etc cetera, etc cetera. so i guess all these elements that point towards working in an everly increasing virtual world rather than the physical world and this blurring between the physical and the virtual world and and stuff like that is is something that we have to continually explore and be involved with because, you know, that experience design then is everything within that because there isn't a physical world to fall, well, the physical constructs to fall back on, but ultimately, you know, the experience is felt in a non-physical world. So, yeah. Absolutely.
0: Bring on the metaverse in whatever form it comes.
1: <laughs> yeah, I wasn't going to use that word, but you, no, know, are, I'll, let you. <laughs> I'll beat you to it. There we go
0: um tim that's everything i wanted to cover with you today that's been absolutely fascinating thank you so much for sharing all your your wisdom do you have any other pearls of 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 wisdom or erudition before i let you go for our listeners
1: um i i just think continue to stay continually stay curious and you know and and inquisitive about the world and what people do and and why they do it i don't ever think that um, experience design will ever you know the more the more the world evolves the more experience design evolves the more things that will come into this space as well there's no that you know bring new skills and techniques bring new thinking in if you're coming from outside i think that's that's a really strong thing but yeah stay curious and and um use that as a shoshin beginner's mind the whole Idea. You always think about stuff. Don't ever think that you know everything, or be blind to stuff just because you've been exposed to it a lot as well. So stay curious, stay inquisitive, ask questions, um and and yeah, continue to look for opportunities to 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 make the world a better place as designers. Which is ultimately really what what we I think what we're all doing. All those that are in are designers in design for. For the right reasons, are there to do so? Um, On that
0: inspiring and uplifting note, I'm going to say thank you very much indeed. That was brilliant.
1: Thank you so much. Right. For taking thanks, part. Mike. Thanks for the time.
0: Thanks for listening to the Understanding Users podcast. If you enjoyed what you heard, do please like or comment wherever you're listening and feel free to share it more widely. And feel free, of course, to drop me a line with any feedback via LinkedIn or my website, researchable.uk. Links are in the show notes. Join me next time when I'll be talking to another experienced UX professional and asking them to share their wisdom, tips, and knowledge with me. Until then, stay safe and stay user-centered.